Well, let's get to the message. Revelation chapter 6. What should we expect? What should you expect? In the year 2000, it was uh, the time of the Y2K scare. And maybe some of you aren't old enough to remember the year 2000, but way back in 2000, just it seems like yesterday, but it's actually 20 years ago, um, many believed that computers would shut down. And so some were stocking food out of fear of the impending catastrophe. Uh, many were afraid to fly because they believed that, you know, as of midnight on December 31st, 1999, the computers would shut down and planes would fall from the sky. So it was during that time that I was uh, invited to speak to a group of young adults about the new millennium, the third millennium. What should we expect? And uh, some of the things that I listed based on what I was reading was, well, a growing online connected global culture. And people are already thinking about the smartphone, but no one knew how it would actually change global culture. I, I mentioned a growing ecological crisis. I talked about the decline of Western society and the emergence of a new uh, world order. And so some of those things are happening in our day. We're in 2020. What should we expect now in the next decade? And well, people are talking about the ever-widening use of artificial intelligence, uh, new discoveries in quantum physics and genetic engineering, and the development of green technology. So you can see this in the literature, you know, in our world today. There's a, a science called futurology, uh, or futures studies, and this is a, a discipline that you find within the social sciences, and it runs parallel to history. Anyways, those involved in this study, uh, are, they're trying to help us understand what we should expect. What's next? As scientists, they too weigh in, and perhaps you saw this headline this week. Uh, it is 100 seconds to midnight. So the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, they met in this last week in Washington, and on January 23rd, they made this announcement at the National Press Club. Uh, they're talking about the greatest dangers uh, or greatest threats to human survival. I'll quote from them. Uh, the nuclear and climate dangers are compounded by a threat multiplier, cyberspace-based information warfare that undercuts society's ability to respond. I continue quoting. The international security situation is dire, not just because these threats exist, but because world leaders have allowed the international political infrastructure for managing them to erode. The president of this bulletin of atomic scientists says, we are now expressing how close the world is to catastrophe in seconds, not hours, or even minutes. And the chairman of the bulletin says, if there's ever a time to wake up, it's now. So, not very encouraging news, right? How seriously do we take uh, those announcements? Uh, Jesus, thousands of years ago, said that we should live awake. And as we read through the book of Revelation, we see that it's telling us that there's much more to history than uh, any sociologist or historian or scientist can unveil to us. Revelation chapter 6, the chapter that we're going to read today, just pulls back the curtain on human history. It's a chapter, unfortunately, where many people stop reading the book of Revelation because they find it difficult to understand. Many preachers stop preaching right here. 
Not only because it's difficult to understand, but it's also very spiritually demanding. But I think it's important to remember the words of Jesus right now. He said to his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the truth of the book of Revelation, it is there for us to help us live in our day in the freedom that Jesus gives us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your written word, and we thank you for the visions that you entrusted to the Apostle John. We thank you that we can read Revelation 6, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide us as we read, as we seek to understand. Thank you for the promise to guide us into all truth. And may we not only understand, but know how to live in light of the truths that we will discuss. May we live in light of your truth and live for your glory with an awareness of our times, but also filled with hope because you're reigning and have all things in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So just before we read the chapter, just a few more words of introduction. Um, One of the questions we must ask is, okay, with which set of glasses are we reading the book of Revelation? And uh, there are at least four major schools of interpretation. There's one called preterism. Uh, That word comes from the Latin, which means uh, things of the past. And so some people, they read the book of Revelation and they say, okay, everything that you see in the book of Revelation actually happened in the past during the first few centuries of the church's history. It's all, it all happened already. That's one school. A second school of interpretation, it's called historicism. And what they see in Revelation chapters 4 through 22 is the history of the church from the early church to the coming of Christ. And so they see a series of chronological events mapped out in the book of Revelation. Then there's a third school of of interpretation called futurism. And they say, yes, there is definitely a series of historical events in the book of Revelation, but Revelation chapters 4 through 22, they speak of the distant future. And so for the first century church, they would have understood that this was speaking of the far distant future, things that would only happen after the rapture, after the, you know, the, the church being caught up. That's the futurism school. So things in the distant future for the early church, but for us in the 21st century, much more imminent. And then there's a fourth school called idealism. And those within this school say, okay, Revelation, it's highly symbolic, and uh, it actually speaks about this ongoing conflict, ongoing struggle between Jesus and his church and the powers of evil, all those forces that act in opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. And so all we really need to do is draw principles from what we read. What's the way of wisdom? Maybe the way of wisdom, and this is what I I believe, is to draw from all four perspectives. First of all, for the first century church, as they read the book of Revelation, they would have understood things to be eminent, the things that Revelation speaks of. Those things are going to happen soon. So we should live in light of what the book of Revelation is saying. What we hear, it gives our lives meaning. It fills us with hope. Then the book of Revelation also does speak to this ongoing conflict 
between Jesus and his church and the forces of evil. And so we need to live in light of what we read in Revelation. And then thirdly, I would say that Revelation does speak of a future escalation of persecution, divine wrath, as we near the coming of Christ and the new heaven and the new earth. And so we are to live in light of Christ's coming. Most importantly, we need to read Revelation chapter 6 in the context of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need to read Revelation chapter 6 from the perspective of the throne room of God, what we saw in chapters 4 and 5. What did we see in chapters 4 and 5? Well, In the vision that is entrusted to the Apostle John, the Lord God Almighty is seated on the throne and he's secure in his reign. He is majestic, radiant, holy, sovereign over all of history. It's in his hands. All things have been created by him, for him, according to his sovereign will. He was and is and is to come. In other words, he has the beginning, the middle, and the end in his hands. In the middle of the throne, we see the little lamb who had been slain, but is now standing. He died and he rose again. He has ransomed people with his shed blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And he alone is worthy to take the scroll from the Father's right hand because he gave his life in sacrificial love. He alone can take the scroll of God's sovereign will and open its seven seals. And he's standing ready to execute the purposes of God, ready to execute God's plans of redemption and judgment. The Spirit of God has been sent out into all the earth, we see in Revelation chapter 5. So all those indwelt by the Holy Spirit are priests to God. They are to reign on the earth. As the Lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father, the throne room of God is filled with worship, round after round of worship. The angelic beings of the highest order worship. The whole redeemed people of God worship. They sing a new song. Thousands and thousands of angels join in worship. The whole created order worships. And the day is coming when every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And we As God's people, we have the joy of joining that crescendo of worship now, of bowing the knee now. And so in light of chapters 4 and 5, in light of that vision of the one seated on the throne, we see the Lamb opening the first seal. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. 
And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So with the opening of the first seal, the Lamb begins to judge humanity. And here we see the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now there are some commentators who look at the context of the ancient Near East and they say, hey, the Parthians... They ruled a region from the uh, eastern part of Turkey all the way to eastern Iran. And they were the most formidable enemy of the Roman Empire. So they see that the Parthians were known for their horses. They see that they were the only group of mounted archers known in the ancient Mediterranean world. White was the sacred color of the Parthians. In their armies, they always had some sacred white horses. So what they comment is that, hey, the idea of a Parthian invasion was um, very real for those living in the Roman Empire. It was the greatest fear of those living in that empire. And the message to the uh, early church was, hey, do not make Rome your security. Do not make Rome your identity. Rome will be judged. The message is the same for us as we live within the political systems that govern us today. Don't make Canada your security. Don't make Canada your identity. Canada, too, will be judged. The first readers of this chapter would have understood the judgment to come in their day. But Revelation, these four horsemen, they also symbolize what happens throughout history. And so let's just take a closer look at the four seals. The lamb opens the first seal, and one of the four living creatures says, Come. Voice like thunder. Wow. And a white horse whose rider has a bow, a crown, comes out conquering. The white horse appears to be good, but deceives. Important to note that the rider here is not Jesus, not the rider of Revelation chapter 19. Why do I say that? Because in Revelation 9, demonic agents are portrayed as horses prepared for battle, and they have crowns on their heads. In Revelation chapter 12 and 13, Satan and his forces conquered by deception, deceiving, imitating Jesus' appearance. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus talks about the first sign of his coming, he talks about deceit. He talks about false messiahs, false prophets. So the white horse and its rider represent the spirit of the Antichrist. That deceptive spirit that encourages us to get what we want by lusting for more. By conquering others, every time that a person tries to conquer another, every time that a people group tries to conquer another, every time that a nation tries to overtake another, it lives inspired by this antichrist spirit. And spiritual evil always generates conflict. And so we see this in the second seal. Then the lamb opens the second seal and a second living creature says, come. And a red horse is summoned. 
And the red, it, it symbolizes the shedding of blood, and its rider is, taken, is given power to take peace from the earth, to incite people to kill one another. He's given a great sword, and it's the Roman sword that symbolizes violent death and warfare. So if we look at human history, we see that it's laced with warfare from beginning to end. Right now there are civil wars in Syria, in Libya, in Yemen, and other countries. There's civil unrest in Baghdad, in Tehran, in Hong Kong, in Venezuela, Lebanon. There are international wars like Ukraine and Russia, Israel and Palestine, and I could go on. International terrorism, economic wars, cyber wars. In times of war, we see the evidence of this lust for power. There's conflict, it generates anarchy, and there's death and bloodshed. And then the Lamb opens the third seal, and a third living creature says, Come. And John looks and he sees a black horse, and that rider has in his hand a pair of scales. Black is symbolic of affliction, of famine. And there's a voice from the midst of the four living creatures saying this, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. A quart was the daily ration for one person, a daily ration of food. A denarius, a silver coin equivalent to the day's wage of a laborer. So, Prices here have been inflated 8 to 16 times the normal price. The bare necessities for one person costs a whole day's work. As a consequence of war, there are food shortages for the majority. But it's interesting that the word is to not touch the oil and wine. Oil and wine were the luxuries of the rich. And so the poor are going without food. But even though there is famine and there are food shortages, the rich continue to enjoy their luxuries. If we look at the world today, we see food shortages in many different places, especially where there's civil unrest like Syria and Yemen and Somalia. But the statistics tell us that in 51 of the 195 countries in the world today, there are food shortages right now, one-fourth of all the nations. If we think about Canada, sometimes we think, well, this is so removed from what we live in our society. An interesting study was done last year. The results were published in April of last year. 48% of Canadians are $200 away from not being able to pay their debts. $200 away from not being able to pay their debts. And most Canadians have absolutely no uh, plan should there be an economic downturn. So if there was an economic crisis in Canada or if there was a downturn in the global economy, 48% of Canadians would be in dire straits within a few days. And then the Lamb opens the fourth seal. And John hears the voice of the fourth living creature, Come! And John looks and he sees a pale ashen horse and its rider's name is Death and Hades, the place of the dead, follows closely. That's a, a grisly image. Death and Hades are given authority to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts, a fourth of the world's population. Sword, famine, illness, wild beasts. That language, it's used by Jeremiah and Ezekiel to describe what will happen to Jerusalem when it's judged. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21. For thus says the Lord God, 
How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. So this was the way that God was going to judge Jerusalem. We see this cycle of destruction throughout history. This desire to conflict, conflict for, uh, to conquer, this hunger for more power, it generates conflict. There's bloodshed, there's famine, there's illness and death. Conflict after conflict. At the end of the 19th century, many thinkers, uh, philosophers, historians believed that we were going to enter into a new era. The 20th century was going to be the apex of civilization. And the 20th century was the most savage in all of history. And so as we enter the 21st century, you will hear people saying, hey, we're entering into a new era. We are evolving morally. It's going to be a great century. Do not be quick to believe the lie. We are not evolving morally. The description of the four horses was prophesied by Jesus. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Now, let's hear the words of Jesus here. He's speaking of some really difficult things, but he's saying to his disciples, don't be alarmed. Don't allow it to generate all kinds of anxiety and worry and fear in your heart. I'm telling you these things so that you'll be ready. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The four horses are the birth pains. They represent the way of the Antichrist. Jesus says, humble yourselves. And the Antichrist says, no, try to conquer. Jesus says, give your life in self-sacrifice out of love. The Antichrist says, no, go to war, fight. The way of Jesus, it leads to life-giving bread and water. The way of the Antichrist leads to starvation and death. These things are true. Each time that a nation tries to conquer another nation. We may think of these things as only happening on a global scale, but sometimes these things are very real in our personal lives, in our families, every time that in a marriage or a family or a church family or a corporation, people have this lust for power, this desire to conquer, it always generates conflict. It generates, if not physical starvation, emotional starvation. It generates the end of relationships and very often it results in death. So what should we expect? Expect the way of humanity under the influence of the four horsemen to lead to exploitation, starvation, and death. It has always been that way and always will be. The way of humanity under the influence of the four horsemen, it leads to exploitation, starvation, and death. 
Now, a question that is asked as we read about the four horsemen is, okay, where's the church in all of this? Where are God's people? And we need to look at the fifth seal. So, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. John sees under the altar the souls of the martyrs of the Christian faith, all those who have died since Stephen, the first martyr, those who have died for the word of God, for their witness to Jesus, all those who have given their lives in, as a living sacrifice. Their blood runs down to the base of the altar and they cry out with a loud voice, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God, how long? How long will you allow people to resist your ways? Lord, you're sovereign over all of history. When will you vindicate your people? Lord, your judgments, they're holy, they're they're true, they're righteous. When will you exercise justice? How long? You know, there's room for lament in our worship, in our prayers. It is very much okay to cry out, God, how long? The same cry we see in the prophets, Zechariah, Habakkuk, in the psalmist. God doesn't ask us to close our eyes and just act as if it's all okay when it's not. God is aware of the suffering of his people. And when the people of God cry out how long, it rises to the Lord as incense. Church around the world today is crying out, how long? Beautiful picture is God, by his grace, granting to the martyrs white robes, robes of sanctification. They're told by the Lord to wait a little longer. And there's comfort in those words because there's a limit to the suffering. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the father, in his sovereign timing, will vindicate his children. Romans chapter 8, Paul, he talks about those who follow Jesus, and he says those who are children of God, they can cry, Abba, Father. And there in that same chapter, he says that all of creation is groaning. And sometimes as God's people, we don't know what to pray, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Paul writes in groanings, too deep for words. What a comfort, right? Because sometimes when we're suffering, we're not sure how to pray. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then Paul writes this, chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. What a comfort! What should we expect? Well, expect the way of the Lamb to enlighten, to validate, and to redeem suffering. Expect the way of the Lamb to enlighten, validate, and redeem suffering. The book of Revelation, it is not written so that we can think about escaping the world. It is about us being enabled to actually face suffering and face evil. Basing our lives on the truth of God. And what are those truths? Well, one of them is that God is sovereign. He does have all things in his hands. And he's bringing to completion his purposes. Secondly, Jesus suffered. He died. He can identify with us in our suffering. But he not only suffered, he rose again. He's standing in the middle of the throne. He is reigning over all things. And one of the beautiful images that we see in chapters 1 through 3 is that Jesus walks among the churches. He sees us. He knows us. He is present with us. And another truth, the suffering, it is not forever. It is temporary. God places limits on the suffering. The suffering sanctifies us. Another truth, the powers of evil as well are under God's sovereign rule. God constrains evil. And then lastly, in the midst of suffering, we, the church, we discover our true purpose. We realize that we are God's people on earth, that we do have a calling, that we are priests to God as we worship, as we pray, as we study the word, as we serve, as we love. We discover what it means to be God's people. So the martyrs cry out, how long? How long? And the answer they receive is, wait a little longer. And then the lamb opens the sixth seal. Chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So the Lamb opens the sixth seal and John sees an earthquake. And in the book of Revelation, the earthquake signals the end. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The moon turns red like blood. The stars of the sky fall to earth like winter figs. When there was a wind, those winter figs would just fall to the ground like rocks. The sky rolls up. Sorry, yeah, the sky rolls up like a scroll. It just vanishes. And all the mountains and islands are removed. What we see here is a heaven and earth meltdown. The end of things as we know it. God takes his sustaining hand off of creation and says to those in rebellion, hey, you want to be your own God? You try to hold it together. 
and everyone, the kings, the princes, the military generals, the rich, the powerful, the slaves, the free. You have the seven classes of Roman society listed. In other words, from emperor to slave, everyone is scrambling. Everyone is pleading for the mountains, the rocks to fall on them because they fear the one seated on the throne. They fear the wrath of the Lamb. It is judgment day. Who can stand? Who can stand when the four horses run wild across the earth? Who can stand when there is war, famine, and illness? Who can stand when the faithful are being persecuted? Who can stand when heaven and earth are coming to an end? Well, the answer of Revelation is only those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Only those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Only those who have chosen to bow the knee now and worship Jesus as Savior and Lord. Only those who have identified with Jesus and his kingdom, not the kingdom of this world, they can stand. There's stories in chapter 7, and I wish I could preach on chapter 7 right now, but that's next weekend. Are you ready for the sixth seal? My burden today is that we would live ready, that we would live in light of Jesus coming. Listen to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the book of Revelation, written by the the Apostle John, Peter, Paul, Jesus, they all talk about the same things. We are to cry, how long, O Lord? So much better to cry, how long, O Lord, than to cry at the end, hide me from the Lord. We can choose to cry, how long, O Lord, rather than cry, hide me from the Lord. And I pray that each one of you has chosen to surrender your life to Jesus and be ready for his coming. Revelation chapter 6, it calls us to look and see history unfolding from the perspective of the throne room of God. God is sovereign, and as the four horsemen ride across the earth, yes, the church does suffer, but Jesus is coming, and he will return for his people, and he will judge, and the suffering will end. And as we wait, we're called to be priests to our God. We're not called to escape, to run away, to hide in the hills. No, we're called to worship, to pray, To be a sign of the kingdom to come, we're called to witness through our deeds, through our words. We're called to love those around us who are suffering. Why? Because we have a hope. 
We have a hope in Jesus. Jesus is coming back. Jesus said this, Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that sign of the coming of our Lord is happening in our day. And so may we live in light of Jesus' coming. May we live full of hope. May we be found faithful to our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord God Almighty, you are worthy of all worship. You are holy, you are sovereign, you are good. And Jesus, we thank you for redeeming us with your shed blood. You gave your life so that we might become children of God. Thank you, Jesus, for sending your spirit to abide in us, to empower us to be your servants in the world today. May we be found faithful. Father, we intercede for our brothers and sisters around the world. We remember them in China, in Iran, in Venezuela. Lord, may they be strengthened by your spirit today. May they be filled with hope, comforted by you. Father, we pray for those living in the midst of conflict in Yemen, in Iraq, in Ukraine. We pray for peace. May we be ambassadors for peace in the world today, Lord. May we be your hands and feet in the midst of suffering. Father, we pray for those in Wuhan and the surrounding areas. We pray for those infected by the coronavirus. We pray for their healing. I think of my brother there that I met a number of years ago, James, just a young leader in the church. He represents your church in Wuhan, Lord. I pray that your church might be your hands and feet in that region today. May they be filled with hope. May their words be graced with your love. May their actions reflect your care, Lord. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray for their comfort. Father, we too pray, how long? And we ask for your kingdom to come. We pray that your will would be done. We pray, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You give life.